Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today I'd like to start with a quick apology for vocal quality. Um, my classroom at school has been hovering around 56 degrees for the past week, week and a half, and as a result, I'm sick and slightly have a nasal quality. This is not a Phoebe from Friends smelly cat situation where I feel like I sound super sexy and I'm gonna try to sing uh, with a sultry, sexy, sick voice. This is, my voice is so nasally right now because I can barely breathe. So, my apologies in advance, um, but I hope that you can forgive me for that and that you will enjoy today's podcast regardless. There were no other survivors. Family members arriving at the scene of the 5th century BC banquet hall catastrophe pawed at the debris for signs of their loved ones. Rings, sandals, anything that would allow them to identify their kin for proper burial. Minutes earlier, the Greek poet poet Simonides of Sios had stood to deliver an ode in celebration of Scopas, a Thessalonian nobleman. As Simonides sat down, a messenger tapped him on the shoulder. Two young men on horseback were waiting outside, anxious to tell him something. He stood up again and walked out the door. At the very moment he crossed the threshold, the roof of the banquet hall collapsed in a thundering plume of marble shards and dust. He stood now before a landscape of rubble and entombed bodies. The air, which had been filled with boisterous laughter moments before, was smoky and silent. Teams of rescuers set to work, frantically digging through the collapsed building. The corpses they pulled out of the wreckage were mangled beyond recognition. No one could even say for sure who had been inside. One tragedy compounded another. Then something remarkable happened that could change forever how people thought about their memories. Simonides sealed his senses to the chaos around him and reversed time in his mind. The piles of marble returned to pillars and the scattered frieze fragments reassembled in the air above. The stoneware scattered in the debris reformed into bowls. The splinters of wood poking above the ruins once again became a table. Simonides caught a glimpse of each of the banquet guests at his seat, carrying, an obliv- carrying on oblivious to the impending catastrophe. He saw Scopas laughing at the head of the table, a fellow poet sitting across from him sponging up the remnants of his meal with a piece of bread, a nobleman smirking. He turned to the window and saw the messengers approaching as if with some important news. Simonides opened his eyes. He took each of the hysterical relatives by the hand and, carefully stepping over the debris, guided them, one by one, to the spots in the rubble where their loved ones had been sitting. At that moment, according to legend, the art of memory was born. Those are the opening pages of the New York Times bestseller Moonwalking with Einstein by Joshua Four who also happens to be one of the founders of Atlas Obscura, one of my very favorite websites that has such a beautiful, great collection of articles of places all around the world. And it really is such a good book. And I'm going to 
go ahead and start. I'm going to go ahead and start with a selection from one of the opening chapters, The Expert Expert. Though it's best not to be born a chicken at all, it is especially bad luck to be born a cockerel. From the perspective of the poultry farmer, male chickens are useless. They can't lay eggs, their meat is stringy, and they're ornery to the hens that do all the hard work of putting food on our tables. Commercial hatcheries tend to treat male chicks like fabric cutoffs or scrap metal, the wasteful but necessary byproduct of an industrial process. I don't know if you just heard that, but my cats are fighting in the background. My apologies. The sooner they can be disposed of, often they're ground into animal feed, the better. But a costly problem has vexed egg farmers for millennia. It's virtually impossible to tell the difference between male and female chickens until they're four to six weeks old, when they begin to grow distinctive feathers and secondary sex characteristics like the rooster's comb. Until then, they're all just indistinguishable fluff balls that have to be housed and fed at considerable expense. Somehow, it took until the 1920s before anyone figured out a solution to this costly dilemma. The momentous discovery was made by a group of Japanese veterinary scientists who realized that just inside the chick's rear end, there is a constellation of folds, marks, spots, and bumps that to the untrained eye appear arbitrary, but when properly read, can divulge the there they go again, can divulge the sex of a day-old bird. When this discovery was unveiled at the 1927 World Poultry Congress in Ottawa, it revolutionized the global hatchery industry and eventually lowered the price of eggs worldwide. The professional chicken sexer, equipped with a skill that took years to master, became one of the most valuable workers in agriculture. The best of the best were graduates of the two-year Zen Nippon Chick Sexing School, whose standards were so rigorous that only 5 to 10% of students received accreditation. But those who did graduate earned as much as $500 a day and were shuttled around the world from hatchery to hatchery like top-flight business consultants. A diaspora of Japanese chicken sexers spilled across the globe. Chicken sexing is a delicate art, requiring zen-like concentration and a brain surgeon's dexterity. The bird is cradled in the left hand and given a gentle squeeze that causes it to evacuate its intestines. Too tight and the intestines will turn inside out, killing the bird and rendering its gender irrelevant. With his thumb and forefinger, the sexer flips the bird over and parts a small flap on its hindquarters to expose the cloaca, a tiny vent where both the genitals and anus are situated and peers deep inside. To do this properly, his fingernails have to be precisely trimmed. In the simple cases, the ones that the sexer can actually explain, he's looking for a barely perceptible protuberance called the bead, about the size of a pinhead. If the bead is convex, the bird is a boy and gets thrown to the left, concave or flat, and it's a girl sent down a chute to the right. Those cases are easy enough. In fact, a study has shown that amateurs can be taught to identify the bead with only a few minutes of training. But in roughly 80% of the chicks, the bead is not obvious and there is no single distinguishing trait the sexer can point to. 
By some estimates, there are as many as a thousand different vent configurations that a sexer has to learn to become competent. The job is made even more difficult by the fact that the sexer has to diagnose the bird with just a glance. There is no time for conscious reasoning. If he hesitates for even a couple of seconds, his grip on the bird can cause the pullet's vent to swell to look unquestionably like a cockerel's. Mistakes are costly. In the 1960s, one hatchery paid its sexers a penny for each correctly sexed chick and deducted 35 cents for each one they got wrong. The best in the business can sex 1,200 chicks an hour with 98 to 99% accuracy. In Japan, a few superheroes of the industry have learned how to double-clutch the chicks and sex them two at a time at the rate of 1,700 per hour. What makes chicken sexing such a captivating subject? The reason that academic philosophers and cognitive psychologists have authored dissertations about it, and the reason that my own research into memory had brought me to this arcane skill, is that even the best professional sexers can't describe how they determine gender in the toughest, most ambiguous cases. Their art is inexplicable. They say that within three seconds, they just know whether a bird is a boy or a girl, but they can't say how they know. Even when carefully cross-examined by researchers, they can't give reasons why one bird is a male and another is female. What they have, they say, is intuition. In some fundamental sense, the expert chicken sexer perceives the world, at least the world of chicken privates, in a way that is completely different from you or me. When they look at a chick's bottom, they see things that a normal person simply does not see. What does chicken chicken sexing have to do with my memory? Everything. I originally thought that the story about chicken sexing was just a diversionary little sidebar, but it really did tie into how his memory worked and how his own training worked. Um, So Josh four, Joshua four ended up going on quite a roller coaster over the course of about a year and a half. um, When he decided after watching a memory championship event that he would try himself to become a memory champion. And he spent about a year training and uh, also worked together with uh, a psychology professor at Florida State University named Kay Anders Erickson to track his progress. um, In addition to meeting with memory experts and memory champions from around the world, um, Joshua Four worked to become a memory champion. And I will tell you in the show notes how well he fared, but it's pretty interesting. It's a pretty interesting journey. And he goes about it in a unique way. Um, I will say I was a little disappointed because he had a whole chapter about an, a poetry memorizing event in the contest in the championships. And I was hoping to gather some techniques 
that I could share with my theater students. But unfortunately, I don't think that the particular techniques that he espoused would work for my kiddos. Um, And it's one of those things where comparing it to the chicken sexers, you know, some things, some, some people just know, and they just can do things that the rest of us maybe can't. Um, Although I was intrigued by some of the uh, various techniques that he covered. It's a very interesting book, and there are a lot of anecdotes from different cases. And I found it very accessible and readable, easily readable, entertaining, and I think others will as well. I will be sure to put a spoiler alert in the show notes before telling you how he fared at his own competition of memory championships. Now, I wanted to tie into the work of memory um, a little bit from a short story collection called The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories by Ken Liu, who writes in his preface, Who can say if the thoughts you have in your mind as you read these words are the same thoughts I had in my mind as I typed them? We are different, you and I, and the qualia of our consciousnesses are as divergent as two stars at the end of the universe. And yet, whatever has been lost in translation in the long journey of my thoughts through the maze of civilization to your mind, I think you do understand me. And you think you do understand me. Our minds managed to touch, if but briefly and imperfectly. Does the thought not make the universe seem just a bit kinder, a bit brighter, a bit warmer and more human? We live for such miracles. I knew when I read those words, and I had to highlight them in my book, uh, that I would enjoy this author. And so far, I really am. He has a short story called The Bookmaking Habits of Select Species that I'd like to share with you in just a moment. And it brings me back to thinking about how in Moonwalking with Einstein, the book on memory, it talks about how writing and reading didn't really come into play and until the Middle Ages, really. And you think about epic poems like um, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey and the epic poet Homer, and you think about the uh, way that they described the characters was made as if like a mnemonic device. So the brave Achilles or the strong Hector, like they always had this kind of descriptor before these characters. It's very interesting. There, there is a lot in that Moonwalking with Einstein book that brings, that, that is fascinating to read about, um, not just the scientific stuff, but the history of, the written word and how it ties to our memories. It's very fascinating. So this is a short story from The Paper Menagerie and other stories by Ken Liu called The Bookmaking Habits of Select Species. There is no definitive census of all the intelligent species in the universe. 
Not only are there perennial arguments about what qualifies as intelligence, but each moment and everywhere, civilizations rise and fall, much as the stars are born and die. Time devours all. Yet every species has its unique way of passing on its wisdom through the ages, its way of making thoughts visible, tangible, frozen for a moment like a bulwark against the irresistible tide of time. Everyone makes books. It is said by some that writing is just visible speech, but we know such views are parochial. A musical people, the elations write by scratching their thin, hard proboscis across an impressionable surface, such as a metal tablet covered by a thin layer of wax or hardened clay. Wealthy elations sometimes wear a nib made of precious metals on the tip of the nose. The writer speaks his thoughts as he writes, causing the proboscis to vibrate up and down as it etches a groove in the surface. To read a book inscribed this way, an elation places his nose into the groove and drags it through. The delicate proboscis vibrates in sympathy with the waveform of the groove, and a hollow chamber in the elation skull magnifies the sound. In this manner, the voice of the writer is recreated. The elations believe that they have a writing system superior to all others. Unlike books written in alphabets, syllabaries, or logograms, an elation book captures not only words, but also the writer's tone, voice, inflection, emphasis, intonation, rhythm. It is simultaneously a score and recording. A speech sounds like a speech, a lament, a lament, and a story recreates perfectly the teller's breathless excitement. For the elations, reading is literally hearing the voice of the past. But there is a cost to the beauty of the elation book, because the act of reading requires physical contact with the soft, malleable surface. Each time a text is read, it is also damaged and some aspects of the original irretrievably lost. Copies made of more durable materials inevitably fail to capture all the subtleties of the writer's voice and are thus shunned. In order to preserve their literary heritage, the Elations have to lock away their most precious manuscripts in forbidding libraries where few are granted access. Ironically, the most important and beautiful works of Elation writers are rarely read, but are known only through interpretations made by scribes who attempt to reconstruct the original in new books after hearing the source read at special ceremonies. For the most influential works, hundreds, thousands of interpretations exist in circulation, and they, in turn, are interpreted and proliferate through new copies. The Elation scholars spend much of their time debating the relative authority of competing versions and inferring, based on the multiplicity of imperfect copies, the imagined voice of their antecedent, an ideal book uncorrupted by readers. The Katsoli do not believe that thinking and writing are different things at all. They are a race of mechanical beings. It is not known if they began as mechanical creations of another, older species, if they are shells hosting the souls of a once organic race, or if they evolved on their own from inert matter. A Katsoli's body is made out of copper and shaped like an hourglass. 
Their planet, tracing out a complicated orbit between three stars, is subjected to immense tidal forces that churn and melt its metal core, radiating heat to the surface in the form of steamy geysers and lakes of lava. A katsoli ingests water into its bottom chamber a few times a day, where it slowly boils and turns into steam as the katsoli periodically dips itself into the bubbling lava lakes. The steam passes through a regulating valve, the narrow part of the hourglass, into the upper chamber where it powers the various gears and levers that animate the mechanical creature. At the end of the work cycle, the steam cools and condenses against the inner surface of the upper chamber. The droplets of water flow along grooves etched into the copper until they are collected into a steady stream, and this stream then passes through a porous stone rich in carbonate materials before being disposed of outside the body. This stone is the seat of the Katsoli mind. The stone organ is filled with thousands, millions, of intricate channels, forming a maze that divides the water into countless tiny, parallel flows that drip, trickle, wind around each other to represent simple values which, together, coalesce into streams of consciousness and emerge as currents of thought. Over time, the pattern of water flowing through the stone changes, Older channels are worn down and disappear, or become blocked and closed off, and so some memories are forgotten. New channels are created, connecting previously separated flows and epiphany, and the departing water deposits new mineral growths at the far, youngest end of the stone, where the tentative, fragile, miniature stalactites are the newest, freshest thoughts. When a Katsoli parent creates a child in the forge, its final act is to gift the child with a sliver of its own stone mind, a package of received wisdom and ready thoughts that allow the child to begin its life. As the child accumulates experiences, its stone brain grows around that core, becoming ever more intricate and elaborate, until it can, in turn, divide its mind for the use of its children. And so the Katsoli are themselves books. Each carries within its stone brain a written record of the accumulated wisdom of all its ancestors, the most durable thoughts that have survived millions of years of erosion. Each mind grows from a seed inherited through the millennia, and every thought leaves a mark that can be read and seen. Some of the more violent races of the universe, such as the Hespero, once delighted in extracting and collecting the stone brains of the Katsoli. Still displayed in their museums and libraries, the stones, often labeled simply ancient books, no longer mean much to most visitors. Because they could separate thought from writing, the conquering races were able to leave a record that is free of blemishes and thoughts that would have made their descendants shudder. But the stone brains remain in their glass cases, waiting for water to flow through the dry channels so that once again they can be read and live. The Hespero once wrote with strings of symbols that represented sounds in their speech, but now no longer write at all. They have always had a complicated relationship with writing, the Hespero. Their great philosophers distrusted writing. A book, they thought, was not a living mind, yet pretended to be one. 
It gave sententious pronouncements, made moral judgments, described purported historical facts, or told exciting stories, yet it could not be interrogated like a real person, could not answer its critics or justify its accounts. The Hespero wrote down their thoughts reluctantly, only when they could not trust the vagaries of memory. They far preferred to live with the transients of speech, oratory, debate. At one time, the Hespero were a fierce and cruel people. As much as they delighted in debates, they loved even more the glories of war. Their philosophers justified their conquests and slaughter in the name of forward motion. War was the only way to animate the ideals embedded in the static text passed down through the ages to ensure that they remained true and to refine them for the future. An ideal was worth keeping only if it led to victory. When they finally discovered the secret of mind storage and mapping, the Hespero stopped writing altogether. In the moments before the deaths of great kings, generals, philosophers, their minds are harvested from the failing bodies. The paths of every charged ion, every fleeting electron, every strange and charming quark are captured and cast in crystalline matrices. These minds are frozen forever in that moment of separation from their owners. At this point, the process of mapping begins. Carefully, meticulously, a team of master cartographers, assisted, assisted by numerous apprentices, trace out each of the countless minuscule tributaries, impressions, and hunches that commingle into the flow and ebb of thought until they gather into the tidal forces, the ideas that made their originators so great. Once the mapping is done, they begin the calculations to project the continuing trajectories of the traced-out paths so as to simulate the next thought. The charting of the courses taken by the great frozen minds into the vast dark terra incognita, incognita of the future consumes the efforts of the most brilliant scholars of the Hespero. They devote the best year, years of their lives to it, and when they die, their minds, in turn, are charted indefinitely into the future as well. In this way, the great minds of the Hespero do not die. To converse with them, the Hespero only have to find the answers on the mind maps. Thus, they no longer have a need for books as they used to make them, which were merely dead symbols. For the wisdom of the past is always with them, still thinking, still guiding, still exploring. And as more and more of their time and resources are devoted to, to the simulation of ancient minds, the Hespero have also grown less warlike, much to the relief of their neighbors. Perhaps it is true that some books do have a civilizing influence. The Toltecs read books they did not write. They are creatures of energy, ethereal, flickering patterns of shifting field potentials. The Toltecs are strung out among the stars like ghostly ribbons. When the starships of the other species pass through, the ships barely feel a gentle tug. The Toltecs claim that everything in the universe can be read. Each star is a living text where the massive convection currents of superheated gas tell an epic drama. With the star spots serving as punctuation, the coronal loops extended figures of speech, and the flares emphatic passages that ring true in the deep silence of cold space. 
Each planet contains a poem, written out in the bleak, jagged, staccato rhythm of bare, rocky cores, or the lyrical, lingering, rich rhymes, both masculine and feminine, of swirling gas giants. And then there are the planets with life, constructed like intricate, jeweled clockwork, containing a multitude of self-referential literary devices that echo and re-echo without end. But it is the event horizon around a black hole where the Toltocks claim the greatest books are to be found. When a Toltoc is tired of browsing through the endless universal library, she drifts toward a black hole. As she accelerates toward the point of no return, the streaming gamma rays and x-rays unveil more and more of the ultimate mystery for which all the other books are but glosses. The book reveals itself to be ever more complex, more nuanced, and just as she is about to be overwhelmed by the immensity of the book she is reading, her companions, observing from a distance, realize with a start that time seems to have slowed down to a standstill for her, and she will have eternity to read it as she falls forever toward a center that she will never reach. Finally, a book has triumphed over time. Of course, no Toltoc has ever returned from such a journey, and many dismiss their discussion of reading black holes as pure myth. Indeed, many consider the Toltocs to be nothing more than illiterate frauds who rely on mysticism to disguise their ignorance. Still, some continue to seek out the Toltocs as interpreters of the books of nature they claim to see all around us. The interpretations thus produced are numerous and conflicting, and lead to endless debates over the book's content and, especially, authorship. In contrast to the Toltocs, who read books at the grandest scale, the Karoué are readers and writers of the minuscule. Small in stature, the Karoué each measure no larger than the period at the end of this sentence. In their travels, they seek from others only to acquire books that have lost all meaning and could no longer be read by the descendants of the authors. Due to their unimpressive size, few races perceive the Caraway as threats, and they are able to obtain what they want with little trouble. For instance, at the Caraway's request, the people of Earth gave them tablets and vases incised with linear A, bundles of knotted strings called kipus, as well as an assortment of ancient magnetic disks and cubes that they no, no longer knew how to decipher. The Hespero, after they had seized their wars of conquest, gave the Caraway some ancient stones that they believed to be books looted from the Katsoli and even the reclusive Untu, who write with fragrances and flavors, allowed them to have some old, bland books whose scents were too faint to be read. The Caraway make no effort at deciphering their acquisitions. They seek only to use the old books, now devoid of meaning, as a blank space upon which to construct their sophisticated Baroque cities." The incised lines on the vases and tablets were turned into thoroughfares whose walls were packed with honeycombed rooms that elaborate on the pre-existing outlines with fractal beauty. The fibers and the knotted ropes were teased apart, rewoven, and retied at the microscopic level until each original knot had been turned into a Byzantine complex of thousands of smaller knots, each a kiosk suitable for a caraway merchant just starting out or a warren of rooms for a young caraway family. 
The magnetic discs, on the other hand, were used as arenas of entertainment, where the young and adventurous careened across their surface during the day, delighting in the shifting push and pull of local magnetic potential. At night, the place was lit up by tiny lights that followed the flow of magnetic forces, and long-dead data illuminated the dance of thousands of young people searching for love, seeking to connect. Yet, it is not accurate to say that the caraway do no interpretation at all. When members of the species that had given these artifacts to the caraway come to visit, inevitably they feel a sense of familiar familiarity with the caraway's new construction. For example, when representatives from Earth were given a tour of the great market built in a kipu, they observed, via the use of a microscope, bustling activity, thriving trade, and an incessant murmur of numbers, accounts, values, currency. One of Earth's representatives, a descendant of the people who had once knotted the string books, was astounded. Though he could not read them, he knew that the kipus had been made to keep track of accounts and numbers, to tally up taxes and ledgers. Or take the example of the katsoli, who found the caraway repurposing one of the lost katsoli stone brains as a research complex. The tiny chambers and channels where ancient, watery thoughts once flowed were now laboratories, libraries, teaching rooms, and lecture halls echoing with new ideas. The Katsoli delegation had come to recover the mind of their ancestor, but left convinced that all was as it should be. It is as if the caraway were able to perceive an echo of the past, and unconsciously, as they built upon a palimpsest, uh, a palimpsest of books written long ago and long forgotten, chanced to stumble upon an essence of meaning that could not be lost, no matter how much time had passed. They read without knowing they are reading. Pockets of sentience glow in the cold, deep void of the universe like bubbles in a vast, dark sea. Tumbling, shifting, joining, and breaking, they leave behind spiraling phosphorescent trails, each as unique as a signature, as they push and rise toward an unseen surface. Everyone makes books. I just love that. If you are a fan of the TV show on Netflix, Black Mirror, I want you to imagine a collection of short stories that you could easily see as that TV series. It's very good. It's very diverse. Every story is very different, but very creative. And again, this author, Ken Liu, just has a remarkable way with words. That is it for this week. I hope you have enjoyed it and were not too turned off by my uh, smelly cat voice or by my cats fighting in the background. Apologies for real. Um, that They're so silly. And uh, if you have any questions or suggestions or comments to share, please feel free to email me, bluestockingpod at gmail.com. You can also check out the website, bluestockingpod.com. And uh, as always, please share this with your friends, rate, review, subscribe. That would be super helpful. Thank you for your time. Have a wonderful day. Oh, 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 oh.